We are going to conclude our Advent sermon series, Christ's Birth Through Mary's Eyes, and we're looking at the actual birth of Jesus this morning. So as the children are leaving, would you stand with me as you're able, and we will affirm our confidence in God's Word before I read our passage. All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Would you stay standing, please? I'm going to read from Luke 2, verses 1 through 20. And this is found on page 857 in the Black Pew Bible. If you want to follow along, I'll read it. And if you don't have a Bible of your own, please take one of ours and take it home. Use it. Read it at home. Luke 2, starting at verse 1. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased." When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart, And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. This is God's word. You may be seated. I'd like to maintain our focus on Mary's experience. I'd like us to try to consider how she felt, what she thought, how she understood what was happening on that night in Bethlehem. So my outline is very simple. I have two points. First, I'd like us to consider the circumstances of Mary's stay in Bethlehem. So I'm asking a question, what kind of life did Jesus enter when he was born to Mary? And secondly, I'd like us to consider the hope that Jesus' birth brought into Mary's life. Now, of course, as we look at Mary, as Ben mentioned in the beginning of the service, we identify with her. We, too, see our experience in her experience. So my outline is going to be, number one, our life, 
So Mary's life into our life, and our hope, Mary's hope into our hope. So two points. Now when you read this narrative, you read how Luke describes the birth of Jesus. It's, it's simple. There's a certain economy of language, uh, precision, and I think all of that because of a purpose he's trying to communicate. So after reading Luke's account, you realize that a lot of details have been left out and perhaps left to uh, artists and preachers and poets to, to fill in, as we do. But after you read it, you realize you don't know all that you want to know about the birth of Jesus. But you should get the point that Luke is making. If we read it carefully, we must come away thinking, what an awful world Jesus came into. I think that's his point. What an awful world was Jesus born into? And then, of course, the hope that he brought into this awful world. So let me show you just in the span of seven verses, Luke gives us a picture of the human experience through the eyes of Mary. Verse 1, 2, and 3, let me read this again. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered each to his own town. That's three verses. Out of the seven, he doesn't have many verses to give us, but out of the seven verses, he takes three to tell us about the sociopolitical context of Christ's birth. Why? The question is why? Why is he telling us about who the emperor was, who the governor was, if he's not trying to make contrast with who Mary and Joseph were. I think the reason is, he's making a point, Joseph and Mary are insignificant people. They live in obscurity, and people who are known are people like Caesar Augustus and Quirinius, and people like that, the powerful people of the day, people who made decisions that affected everybody else. Now think about Mary's life and Joseph's lives. They hear about this decree, some guy somewhere in Rome, right, decides everybody Go to the town you were born in and register. Drop everything you're doing. Go to your town and register. Why? So you can pay me money. Taxes. This is a tax register. And so on they go because their lives are dependent on decisions of, of people and, and power. Caesar Augustus was heir to Julius Caesar, the first emperor of the empire of Rome, ruler who established the peace of Rome, Pax Romana, and maintained it for over 40 years. This is a tremendously powerful and important person in history. And if you compare him to Joseph or to Mary, they're utterly insignificant. They live in obscurity. He doesn't know their names. He doesn't know where they're born. He doesn't care. And yet his decision affects them tremendously. Luke, to give us the time during this long reign of Caesar Augustus when this particular census was taken, mentions a governor who was in Syria, and Judea is just part of this larger province. So this governor is not even, is not even in Judea, he's in Syria. And again, his decisions affect everybody else in Judea. Now this is the kind of life that Jesus is born into, a life of obscurity and insignificance. Can you identify with Mary's experience? I don't know about you, but I often feel like my life is shaped 
by decisions made by someone else who doesn't know me and doesn't particularly care about me. Don't you feel like your life is governed by policies invented by some powerful people in some distant place? And they say, and you go, right? And they say, pay me taxes, and we go and pay taxes. And they say, travel to this place, and we travel. They don't know us, but their decisions are tremendously influential in our lives. We know them. They're public figures. People know their name. They know their lives. But they don't know us. Most of us, if not all of us here, live in obscurity, and we are utterly insignificant in the context of the larger historical events that are taking place around us. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, if you can't identify that, if you, you think you're important, okay, and you're known, let me just take you back to the time when you went, last time you went to the DMV to get your driver's license. <laughs> you get there, and they place you in a holding area, and they tell you, we're not going to use your name, we're going to give you a number. And you sit there with that tiny piece of paper and wait for that number to be called. And oh, the excitement when that number gets called. <laughs> especially, it's a kind of a game you can play. Especially, I, went, I just went with my daughter to register her car. And, and, and you wait, and when they say, and your number is 927, and then they go, 921, and nobody stands up. And you're thinking, this is great, I'm just one step closer. 922 and nobody else stands up, it's, it's a lot of excitement. But how, how significant, how important do you feel? They're not even using your name. They want to give you a number. They want to be efficient. And then you get to the window only to find out there's a piece of document that, that you forgot at home, and you have to go through the whole thing again. Now, this is the world of Mary. This is our world we, most of us, live in obscurity and insignificance, and this is the world that Jesus comes into. And he comes into this world as an obscure, insignificant person. It's very important to see that he comes under these terms and enters into this family and this world and this kind of culture. Now let's read on, verse 4. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Now, because Joseph was from Bethlehem, sort of a, um, I think the emperor was basically playing to the Jewish customs, even though he's the, the oppressor here, but he's letting them maintain their genealogies. And so Joseph goes to Bethlehem from Nazareth, several days' journey, he comes and, and to register there to pay taxes, and Mary, who's now in the last stage of her pregnancy, comes with him. And the question is why? Why is Mary coming with Joseph? Now, we know from history that she didn't have to come, that he could have represented the family. He could have been the only person from their family to register them, and it would have been fine. Now, Mary still had to pay taxes, but she didn't have to be present physically there to register. And yet, they come together. And as I've looked into it, there's a general consensus among the commentators and scholars, and that seems right to me, that Mary preferred to walk all the way to Bethlehem rather than endure the gossip, judgment, and shaming in Nazareth. Like Taylor Swift, Mary had a big reputation. 
Joseph and Mary were part of a big conversation in, in Bethlehem. Now imagine that culture. Imagine what people thought. Imagine what they said. Imagine how they treated her. And now her husband is gone somewhere. She says, I'd rather go with him. I'd rather travel to Bethlehem. I'd rather walk this whole way than stay here by myself and endure the shaming of my relatives and other people from my community. Leanne Morris, one of the commentators, says, we should perhaps reflect that it was the combination of a decree by the emperor in distant Rome and the gossip in tongues of Nazareth that brought Mary to Bethlehem at just the time to fulfill the prophecy about the birthplace of the Christ. Now, I think Luke actually hints at that in our text. He calls Mary Joseph's betrothed, who was with child. Now, they're married at this time already. They're married. And yet, in the eyes of everybody else, she's the betrothed one who got pregnant. And so she travels with him to avoid the shaming and the derision of her hometown. Mary lived in shame, ostracized in her own community. And this is the kind of life that Jesus enters. Jesus comes into this kind of life. In the midst of shame, in the midst of gossip, he's born to Mary, the betrothed of Joseph. I read an interesting article this week by Helen Andrews uh, where she describes the increasingly more prevalent culture of shame the article is called Shame Storm. Shame Storm. She talks about the power of public shaming to end people's careers, especially if it's done in the context of a larger cultural movement. If you just co-opt certain phrases, if you say it the right way, you can really do a lot of damage to people in the public sphere. Now, many allegations are proven true and they expose the evil that had been done in the dark, and so in some ways we should celebrate that. But sometimes a mere rumor that employs the right words can cause irreparable harm. Andrews recounts her own story of being on a political panel on TV, like C-SPAN 2 or something like that, you know, fairly obscure channel. I don't know how much you tune into C-SPAN 2. And she was on a panel with other young people who were, I guess, young and up-and-coming conservative thinkers. And her ex-boyfriend was part of that panel. And he just kind of ranted about her views, opposing her views, ranted on how it's really her character that has defined her views. And because she's a cruel person, she has cruel views. And he just kind of ranted. And his rant went viral. And so everybody's seen it. After years of not being able to get a job, not being able to be accepted for who she was, Andrews eventually ended up moving to Australia to, to escape the embarrassment of that one short video clip that is accessible to all. And I'm sure if we Googled it now, we would, it would come up right away. And so she talks about this, this culture of, of shaming and how we can damage someone's career, damage someone's life. And it's now, in our culture, because of the technology, it's irreparable. You can't do anything about it. Whether it was right or wrong, it, it doesn't matter as much in the end. And that's the kind of world that Jesus enters. The world of 
shame and public embarrassment. Let's keep reading. Verse 6. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Now you know scholars argue about the exact circumstances of Jesus' birth. Were Mary and Joseph really rejected by a heartless innkeeper, as some of our carols and stories tell? Did they spend the night in a stable, or did they spend a night in a cave somewhere with animals? Did they stay with relatives, perhaps, in a common room that was also shared with the family's livestock? And we don't really know the answers to these questions, and there's many theories, and I'm sure one of them is right, but we don't really know, and Luke doesn't tell us. He doesn't want to tell us. What we do know, as one commentator says, we know only that everything points to poverty, obscurity, and even rejection. So whatever happened, whoever has rejected them, wherever they stayed, there's no way to read this passage and say they were welcomed in Bethlehem, that they were given all the opportunities to to go through a healthy labor and delivery process. We can't read this and say that everything was fine. It was not fine. They found some place, somewhere, where they, she had to give birth. And by the way, she, it says that Mary swaddled her baby. She did that. But why? There's nobody else there. It's just her and Joseph. And you know, Joseph is probably standing cluelessly and helplessly in the corner of cave, stable, or room, depending on your interpretation. He's no help. So she gives birth by herself to the baby, swaddles him. Now imagine, imagine going through that. I mean, it's, it's and, and I need to be careful when I speak about this because I only saw that from afar, you know, and, and I never experienced a birth firsthand. But from what I understand, and all that I understand, this is a hard, this is a traumatic experience. It's very difficult. And to do it by yourself, on your own, in some cave somewhere, How hard it must have been for Mary. And thinking that there's nobody else, she's utterly rejected. At her most vulnerable, Mary is alone in a strange place, rejected at home in Nazareth, rejected once again in Bethlehem. This is the life that Jesus was born into. We have to to read this story, and especially as we do it this year, from Mary's perspective and realize the kind of world Jesus was coming into. And, and yes, we have a tendency to make it sound a lot more peaceful and, and, and quiet and nice and calm, right? And there was a certain peace and a certain calmness because of Jesus' hope, I think. And we'll get to it in just one minute. But this is, this is not a nice world. Mary is rejected. She has been shamed. Her life depends on the decisions of somebody far away who just tells them what to do, and she gives birth to her firstborn. Now, we all experience rejection to a certain degree, and I'm sure there are many stories in this room where you would say, when they said that about me, that hurt me deeply. I was hoping that I would have a relationship with this person, and they abandoned me. I had a friend who betrayed me. My parents left, and they don't love me. That's, that's normal human experience, unfortunately. All of us identify with these things. And those of us who maybe have done better than others and feel like, well, our life is generally together and it's fine, 
Don't we live in fear of rejection? Maybe you don't experience rejection directly right now, but don't you live, live in fear that it will happen at some point or it might happen? Somebody will find something out about you. Somebody will stop loving you that should love you. Henry Nouwen, I, I don't know of any other writer that writes about rejection and insecurity as well as Henry Nouwen does. And he says, beneath much human assertiveness, competitiveness, and rivalry, beneath much confidence and even arrogance, there's often a very insecure heart, much less sure of itself than outward behavior would lead one to believe. I have often been shocked to discover that men and women with obvious talents and with many rewards for their accomplishments have so many doubts about their own goodness. Instead of experiencing their outward successes as a sign of their inner beauty, they live them as a cover-up for their sense of personal worthlessness. Not a few have said to me, if people only knew what goes on in my innermost self, they would stop with their applause and praise. Many of us feel this way, even as we get applause of praise, even as we get love and affirmation from others. There is that nagging fear in the very depths of our hearts that says, if they only knew, if they only knew, I feel that. Even having received your expression of love today and knowing how much you love me, and I know that you love me, and I love you, there's a nagging part in my heart that says, if they only knew, if they only knew, what I'm really like. If they could really get to know me the way I know myself, I don't think they would do this anymore. That's normal human experience, human, sinful, broken experience. And this is the world that Jesus enters, the world of rejection and fear of rejection. Now, one last thing I want to mention as a description of Mary's life is her poverty. Her poverty. We already learned last week that Mary was considered to be poor enough to offer a bird as a sacrifice and not a lamb. So already in the sacrificial ritual system of the temple, she was considered to be in the category of people who couldn't afford a normal sacrifice. So she was kind of downgraded and an allowance was made for her to bring a dove or, or a pigeon. And by the way, they traveled to Bethlehem to participate in, in the census so they could be registered as taxpayers, as I said. So not only did they have very little, they owed part of what they had to Rome. Now this is the world Jesus is born into. He came as a poor person. He came into a family that did not have much and probably owed more than they had. The people who celebrated Jesus' arrival were shepherds, the lowest class in society. Now think about it. Our Savior comes into our world, into our lives in this way. Mary gives birth in a stable, places her baby in a manger, and is greeted by shepherds. Jesus comes, right? It's so important for us to understand that this is how Jesus sees us. And so he wants to identify with us. He wants to come right into our experience. He doesn't want to make it sound better. He doesn't want us to feel that we're better off than we really are. He wants to come in right into the mess of our experience, into the shame and rejection and poverty of our experience. Now, is there hope? I think so. After the shepherds heard the angel's announcement and the praise of the heavenly company, they rushed to see the baby. Verse 16. 
They went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning the child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Remember, our focus is Mary and how she sees it. And so she's there, having just given birth. The baby is there in a manger. The baby's not supposed to be in mangers, but this baby is. And shepherds come, and they announce that we heard angels. And angels told us that this is the Savior. This is Christ the Lord. And they are rejoicing. And as Mary is listening to that, she is pondering that. She's treasuring it up. She's soaking up hope that's coming into the world through this baby. I'd like to imagine her holding the baby in her arm and kissing the baby right between his eyes and just feeling the surge of hope coming into her heart. Because through this baby, all those things, shame and rejection and, and, and poverty and obscurity and insignificance are going to come untrue. They're going to be changed. And she knows it. Now she knows it because the shepherds told her what the angel said, and the angel said, fear not, don't don't be afraid of this life. Behold, I bring you good news of great joy for all the people. Unto you, it's very personal, to you this day is born in this city, in this place, a Savior, Christ the Lord. And so she hears that, and that reaffirms what she had already heard from another angel, what she had already heard from God, what she read in the Bible, that someone is coming into the world, and that someone is here, right here in her lap, that someone is the promised Savior, the promised King, and He has come to save His people and establish a just and better rule. And as she placed the Savior and King in a manger... She must have thought, he really knows our condition. He really understands what we are going through. As she's placing the king in a manger, rejected by all, and yet the shepherds come in and proclaiming the news, she's thinking, he must really know what he's getting into. He must really know what my life is like. He must really know what Joseph's life is like. He must really know what rejection and shame and poverty is. I heard of this phenomenon called sympathetic resonance. Now, as I talk about things I don't understand, the longer I talk about it, the less likely it's going to be that I'm going to speak of it accurately. So I'm going to limit it. But as far as I understand, there is such a thing in music and physics probably. This is where I should, I can't use terms. I don't understand it. But my understanding is that if you, if you strike a string in one instrument, another string in another instrument will sound. If you use a tuning fork, you can strike the tuning fork and it'll make a sound. And if there was another tuning fork there, it will actually sound, and so you can stop the original fork from sounding, but that one will still sing. There's a resonance that happens between objects that are similar. And so when I think about Jesus... That's what happens with him because he came into this world. He came into the world of shame. He came into the world of 
of, of public humiliation. He came into the world of poverty. He came into the world of rejection, which means that every time you feel shame, he feels it too. Every time you experience rejection, he resonates with it. Every time you feel insignificant, he knows it. Every time you lack something, he identifies with it. Can I get an amen to that? Because that is so important for us to know that when Jesus came to save us, he knows what he's saving us from. Because he's experienced that. He understands exactly what it feels like to be embarrassed. Exactly what it feels like to lack something. Exactly what it feels like to be rejected. Because he was the baby placed in a manger, rejected by all. He knows it. He feels it. So next time you pray, and you pray and you say, Jesus, I just feel so bad. He knows he feels so bad too. But not only Jesus was born into this kind of life, right into our mess, he was born as a savior and king. Not only does he identify with us and resonates with our feelings and experiences, he came to transform our experiences with hope. Remember Mary's song in Luke 1 about the great reversal, the gospel peripety of Christ's coming. In Jesus' coming, the humble are exalted. The hungry are filled with good things. God's people are helped. Now, this is, Mary knows that because she has sung it to us. So we can, we can speculate a little bit with, with confidence here that, that she is feeling something now that she's already expressed. And as she's holding the baby, she's thinking, this is the hope coming into the world, and everything is going to get turned upside down. The humble are going to be exalted. The poor will become rich. Those who are struggling and are rejected now will be accepted. Those who have been publicly shamed will be publicly praised. And so she is, as she's holding the baby, she is processing the implications of the Savior, this King, coming into the world, and she is soaking up that hope. Jesus brings to all who accept him this new hope of a better world, of a different life, of a different experience. Do you see how Jesus, as the Savior and King, came to give you hope? You. Can you make a connection between your life, not just Mary's life, but now your life, and your experiences of shame and rejection and poverty and want, whatever that is in your life, and say, the birth of Jesus, he's coming into the world, affects me today. That somehow this hope coming through this baby in a manger is going to transform my life. Rescuing you from your insignificance. Rescuing you from your shame. Rescuing you from your rejection and your want. J.I. Packer, the great theologian, said, this Christmas message is that there is hope for a ruined humanity. Hope of pardon, hope of peace, with God, hope of glory. Because of the Father's will, Jesus Christ became poor and was born in a stable so that 30 years later he might hang on a cross. It is the most wonderful message the world has ever heard or will hear. He's absolutely right. What better message can there be than to say that someone from outside of this world came into our world, identified completely with us, and yet has enough power and wisdom to transform our experience. Oh, that's good stuff, right? That's what we want to hear. 
And so as he comes into our world, we welcome him as the source of all hope. Helen Andrews, that article, the shame storm article that I mentioned, explained how she dealt with it, and she hints at the solution to that, even in her article. I don't know if she's a believer or not, but the trajectory certainly leads to Christ in her article. She says, as for people who find themselves at the center of an online shaming, I can only report how I made peace with mine. My first reaction to the video was to feel aggrieved, thinking that I did not deserve what was happening to me. But on the day of judgment, all my sins will be shouted from the housetops. And Todd's rant will sound like a retirement luncheon toast in comparison. So she's, awful thing happened to her, right? And by the way, she acknowledges that a lot of stuff he said was true because he knew her. But she says, of course I deserved it. And worse, most of us poor sinners do. So she's making a connection between her experience of shame and saying there's a much deeper and much more consequential shame that exists. One day, all the shameful things you have done and felt and said and thought will be made known to all creation. Oh, what a crushing thought. I'm afraid somebody might know what I'm thinking at any particular moment, but for everybody to know all that I've been thinking, I, I don't know how I can face that. Well, I can't. But in Christ, my shame has been turned into praise. On that day, on the day of judgment, when you appear before Christ, He is not going to recite all your shameful acts and deeds and thoughts and emotions. Instead of that, God will recite all the good that Jesus has done on your behalf. And because He entered your world, your life, and transformed it, He undid all your shame and He removed all your guilt. Imagine that. You show up knowing who you are, knowing what you've done. And God says, we're not going to recite all your shame. You know we're going to focus on what Jesus has done for you and how he perfectly fulfilled the law on your behalf, how he has done everything right. And because you're with him, because you've connected yourself to him by faith and you're part of him now, and I see you through him, all that I'm going to say is going to be good things about you. Because of Jesus. Because on, on your behalf, he has transformed it. And when you see him, he will say, enter into the joy of your master. Listen to C.S. Lewis. In some sense, as dark to the intellect as it is unendurable to the feelings, we can be both banished from the presence of him who is present everywhere and erased from the knowledge of him who knows all. We can be left utterly and absolutely outside, repelled, exiled, estranged, finally and unspeakably ignored. On the other hand, we can be called in, welcomed, received, acknowledged. We walk every day on the razor edge between those two incredible possibilities. Apparently then, our lifelong nostalgia, our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off, to be on the inside of some door, which we have always seen from the outside, is no mere neurotic fancy, but the truest index of our real situation. 
and to be at last summoned inside would be both glory and honor beyond all our merit and also the healing of that old ache. What Lewis says is that we all live with this ache to be accepted, with this ache to be praised, to be included, to be welcomed in, to be on the other side. We suspect there's another side where we can live accepted and praised. And so we long for that, and yet our experience is one of rejection and shame. But one day, because of Jesus, not because of our merit, because of Jesus, because of his grace, we can be welcomed in and be embraced by this God who will never bring up our shame again. What an incredible reality. And if you believe that, you should never feel shame again. You should be free from that even now as Mary was. Now you see, Mary, in her experience, even in the midst of all the rejection and shame and poverty she experienced, she could still handle that. Why? She could handle the gossip in Nazareth because she knew that she had favor of God. The angel told her. She could handle the poverty because in her arms she held the greatest treasure in all creation. She could handle being rejected because she was accepted with God. The Lord is with you, the angel said. Because of all that, even then, even before all these things are fulfilled in Jesus, she lived a radically different life. The old ache for acceptance and praise was healed in her heart. And because of Jesus' entrance into our lives, we can know God and he can know us and our old ache can be healed too. We really can be accepted with him, even now. When you come to the heavenly DMV, friends, (laughs) to get your new Jerusalem driver's license, you will not hear 927, 927. You won't hear that. You will hear your name. Jesus will cry out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out, and you'll come. And, And... Don't matter whether you're dead or alive, you will come because he will call you by name because he knows you by name. But it's only possible in Jesus. It's only possible because of the baby in a manger that entered our experience and transformed it. When your name is called on the last day and you appear before the king, he will look at the census list and he will examine your tax records and he will announce that you will owe nothing to God that it's all been paid in full on the cross by Jesus, who was born as a baby in the manger in Bethlehem. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Friends, we're all, we're all rich because we have the treasure of heaven right in our hearts. As we come to the Lord's table, let me address those who might not know the hope of Jesus' coming. How can you experience this hope? Maybe you've identified with the first part of the sermon. You said, yeah, I feel rejection. I feel shame. I feel poverty. I feel obscure and insignificant. But how does that change? It changes when Jesus enters into your life. It can't be Mary's life, it can't be my life, it can't be anybody else's, it has to be your life. How does he come? Well, notice again that Christ comes to Mary and Joseph, the two poor 
peasants from Galilee, that he is born in a stable, that he is placed in a manger. Christ comes to shepherds. So to see Jesus as your treasure, you must recognize that you are poor, that you have nothing to offer. You can't pay your tax bill with God. To have the day spring from on high come to you, you must acknowledge that you sit in darkness. To be accepted with God, you must admit that your shameful sin has separated you from God. To find hope, you must ponder the gospel in your heart and accept the good news of great joy that unto you, unto you, is born this day a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And if you come to him, hope will flood your life. It will flood your life, and it will change you. 